0: Well, I've heard, um, and you've probably heard of families like this where siblings fight over ridiculous and insignificant things. Uh, I've been in doctor's offices and read the parenting magazines and read these, some of these stories. Um, it may be a chair around the table that everybody wants. It may be the biggest pancake in the platter. It may be which game to play next on the game system. I know you don't know these stories personally, but just hypothetically, these kinds of stories have happened, I've heard. Um, and we think in times like that, it's just a pancake. <laughs> it, but it leads to this major skirmish between siblings and and just causes all kinds of problems in a home. That's what it seems like in 1 Kings 21. I realize we haven't read... The text yet, and we're going to work our way through it in just a moment. But, but I, I know some of you read ahead of time, and if you've read it, uh, and, and you see the heading. I put this in the bulletin, in the little paragraph. The heading in my Bible says, Naboth's Vineyard. And we, and we look at it and we think, it's just a vineyard. It's just a poor man's vineyard. The king wants a vineyard, but the king doesn't need a vineyard, and the owner doesn't want to part with the vineyard. But that's, that's not the end of the story. It should be, but it's not. There's this incredible fallout that happens. You have covetousness and sulking and, and conspiring and lying and killing all over a vineyard. It's a pancake. <laughs> but this passage, it's not just about a vineyard. It's not just about grapes. It's about God. And we want to behold God in this text. It's more about God's justice and God's mercy than it is about Naboth's little vineyard. And so let me quickly orient you to the what's going on here. There are four key human players in this clash over a pancake Um, Ahab, Jezebel, Naboth, and Elijah. I'm taking my sermon title "Payday someday." I got to give Howard props here because he pointed me to this. I've heard of R.G. Lee and his sermon "Payday someday," but I'd never listened to it. And so, if you want to go home and look look that up, R.G. Lee, uh, "Payday someday," it's a famous sermon and it was preached on this text, and it's just great. and uh, do it. After, I'm glad you're doing it after I preach, because it will be really it would have been a letdown. Um, but he introduces Ahab in this sermon as the vile human toad who squatted upon the throne of his nation, the worst of Israel's king. That's just there's so many good one liners in this message. He called Jezebel a snake coiled upon the throne of the nation. So you have Ahab, you have Jezebel, we've been introduced to them already. We meet Naboth here in the text. He's a faithful Israelite who models what righteous obedience should should be looking like for the people of Israel. You remember when God told Israel, or God told Elijah last time we were in Kings uh, in his pit of despair, God encourages Elijah. He says, Elijah, I have seven thousand people in the land who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. Well this is one of them Naboth and he's living in the shadow of the the wicked Ahab's palace And then we meet again Elijah he's a rejuvenated Elijah he's out of the pit and and he's back and he receives this word from the Lord and boldly goes to confront Ahab. So those are the four key players and and let's get right into the story then now. So we're going to consider two exhortations that are drawn from this narrative this morning. And the first one is this is is be prepared to suffer for the sake of righteousness. And we're going to start we're going to see the forest before we look at the trees of the story. Just real quick, let me let me just say it again. This is more than a story about a vineyard, a wicked king and the owner of that vineyard. This is more than that. This little episode is one small skirmish in this larger battle that's been raging since Satan defied God's authority before the creation of this world. And so this this represents this war, this battle that's been going on for millennia now that's going on between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. This This is a small scene in that. This is a futile attempt by the devil to snuff out the remnant of God's people. Put a stop to his plan. This is the seed of the serpent trying to choke out the seed of the woman. That's what's going on in this story. And so don't miss that. We sing a mighty fortress is our God, one of the great hymns of the faith. Our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. This is a, this text is a little snapshot of the enemy at work and his cruel hatred of God and his, against God and his people. And so, because of that theological, large theological reality, what we can say then, and this is the point, is that God's people always need to be prepared to suffer for the sake of righteousness. The, the, this world, as Martin Luther goes on, this world with devil's field, it will always, always threaten to do to undo us. That's just a, a it's, just, it's just true. And so, with that said, we see the forest. Now let's look at the trees, and we see this little skirmish that is part of this larger battle. So here's the story. Uh, now we skipped chapter twenty. I, I didn't forget about chapter twenty, and I'm not ignoring it or I'm not avoiding it because it's. It does have some challenges. That's not, we're going to cover chapter 20 along with chapter 22 next week, and I'll show you why we're, I'm putting those together, uh, more of a thematic uh, adjustment to the series here. But in chapter 20, the king, shows up, uh, the king of Syria shows up with his army, and he has 32 other kings with him and chariots and horses. So this is his massive show of force. And he comes against Ahab, and he says, basically, give me all your stuff. He says, I want your gold, I want your silver, I want your wives, I want your children. I want, I want it all. And so he comes and Ahab's backed into this corner and he's got nowhere to turn but the Lord, the God of Israel. And so he, 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 through a prophet, God, God gives this assurance to Ahab, you're going to win the battle. And so, and to Ahab's credit, he, he follows God's plan and 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 he does things God's way and he's victorious and not once but twice Israel uh, wins military victory over though they were incredibly outnumbered and and um, against overwhelming odds so God delivers to Ahab his arch enemy Ben-Hadad king of Syria he's right there but this is the deal with Ahab he his stuff is secure now His gold, his silver, his wives, his children—that's not an issue. He's got—he's got the king right there in front of him. His stuff's secure, so he doesn't need the prophet anymore. He doesn't—he doesn't need God anymore. He can take it from here. Thanks God, but I got it from here. When God said you need to kill this man, but he says no. I'm going to let him go. I'm going to do things my way now, and that God is not very happy with that. So God sends a prophet to Ahab, and after the prophet rebukes Ahab for his disobedience to the Lord. This is the very last verse of chapter 20. Look back there with me. Chapter 20, verse 43. And the king of Israel, Ahab, went to his house, vexed and sullen, or some translated bitter and angry, and came to Samaria. So he storms off to his palace to pout, basically, because he thinks God wasn't very nice to him. Now we pick up the story in chapter 21. That's the setting here, and it's... It's sometime later. We're not sure how much later this is, but he's no longer in Samaria in chapter 21. He's he's at his summer palace in Jezreel. And so Ahab is in Jezreel doing what kings did at that time. Basically, whatever they wanted to do. And one of Ahab's little personal hobbies was was do it yourself kind of stuff. And so uh, he was, he was, he loved that. He would have been an HGTV junkie. In our day, because um, he loved building palaces and fixing his palaces up and building gardens and expanding those those kinds of things. And so after years of drought, things were going really well and were growing really well. And so he decided this is a prime time to to expand the palace garden. So he wants to plant a new vegetable garden. That's what he wants. And he sees the perfect spot for his new garden. This little scrap of land right outside the palace being used as a, as a little vineyard. And so that's, that's it. That's where, the, that's where the garden needs to go. And so this is the first part of the story. I don't think this made it in your outline, and that was my fault. But the first little movement in the story is what Ahab proposes. Ahab proposes verses 1 and 2. Look, at, look in verse 2 with me. Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard. That I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. Now that sounds like a very simple and straightforward real estate transaction, doesn't it? And I mean, it really seems like a fair offer. Uh, he's not, he, he seems to be going about it the right way here and pursuing this. He's willing to trade for that land. And give him a better vineyard. Or if he just wants to get out of the vineyard business entirely. He says, hey, I'll pay you cash for what it's worth. And so that's, that's what Ahab does. Goes to Naboth. Makes this offer. He's not trying to intimidate him. He's not putting a horse head in his bed or something like that. <laughs> but, but Naboth refuses him. Look at this. This is the second movement. Naboth protests. Verse 3. And Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Naboth's answer is this emphatic no, not a chance. And we say, why? Listen, Naboth isn't just being sentimental. It's just not, I can't, just can't stand the thought of, of, of losing the family farm. I have too many memories here. That, that's not what's I mean, I'm sure they had wonderful memories there, but that's that's not what this is about. He's not being sentimental, he's being theological. He 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 he, he knows more. He, his rejection of this otherwise reasonable offer from Ahab is rooted in his knowledge of God's instructions to his people concerning the land that they possessed. When God brought his people into the promised land, he Divided it among the tribes and among um, among the tribes as their inheritance, and so he and he and he gave them laws that that pre- prevented the um, the transferring the sale of the land, and so the the land was to stay with the family, and so there were all these laws for this, the foundation of the, those laws, the foundation of this idea from God is this: is that the land is not yours; the land ultimately belongs to God, and he and he only assigns its use to families. And so there really wasn't technically sale of the land. There was opportunity to lease the land under very dire circumstances. There were these uh, exceptions, but but it was real estate was not a lucrative business in is, ancient Israel. Let's just say that. There was not land being sold and bought all the time. At least when they were faithful to the Lord. So, so what is Naboth doing? He's living by biblical convictions here. He, he could be wealthier through this deal. He could probably negotiate a better deal than, than Ahab first offered. He could probably have an in with the king if he kind of works with the king on this. But without hesitation, he says, God forbid. God forbid because he lives by the word of God. And this is what you need to note. I mean, we say, that, that's that's nice. No, this is more than nice. At this time in Israel's history, not the king, not the people of, of Israel as a whole. Nobody lived by the word of God. Very few. There, were the, there was the remnant. But, but the whole culture as a whole, it just disregarded God's law. And so in the midst of this corrupt, truth-ignoring culture... Naboth has the convictional backbone to say, you know what? It may be okay and perfectly acceptable in the culture, but it's not acceptable to God. So the Lord forbid it. No, I'm, I'm not selling the land. I just, there's application for us there. We, we need that kind of backbone, that kind of conviction. In our day, uh, we, the, the words God forbid should be in our vocabulary that we We live in a culture that increasingly cares less and less about what God has to say. We expediency Trump's um, revelation, divine revelation. Um, what makes us feel good is more important to us than what God has to say. that's That's just the culture we live in. And so we need to have the moral and theological courage. To say, this is my authority. doesn't matter what's popular. doesn't matter what's acceptable in the culture. This is my authority. And this is what I submit to. So God forbid that I should disobey the Lord. So we, we need to, 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 in the words of Paul, abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. This is what Naboth is demonstrating here. Not to be self-righteous, goody-two-shoe, moralistic jerks. That's not what we're talking about. But but loving and holy children of light in the midst of a dark world. That's what Naboth demonstrated here. That's what we need. So Ahab wants the vineyard. And he wants it bad. <laughs> he wants it bad. He has so much, but he doesn't have this. And so he wants it. And we see how full of greed and covetousness and discontent his heart is by his response to Naboth's no. That's what we see. The next little movement is Ahab pouts, verse 4. Um, just like he did after the prophet rebuked him in chapter 20. This is what we see here Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen, again, because of what Naboth said to him. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would not even eat food. He's like a spoiled child throwing a temper tantrum because he doesn't get what he wants Um, R.G. Lee again one of his little one liners he calls he says he's whining like a sick hound that's a good word picture I mean this is a king of Israel crying refusing to eat food because he can't get what doesn't even belong to him Uh, it's pathetic but his sulking isn't just childish it's it's wicked. It's sinful. It's It exposes something in his heart. Do you understand that? It, that it, it reveals his greed. It reveals his beastly appetite for more. And, and so Ahab's course of action, it illustrates what James talks about. and then In James chapter 1, that progression of sin, James 1.15, he says, Then desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings death. I mean, that's, that's Ahab. This is his, his desire for a vegetable garden isn't met. And that unmet desire gives birth to sin, to covetousness, to anger, to bitterness. And that sin eventually leads to death. This is what we see here. But this is the thing I want you to see. Greed, covetousness, like all sin... It begins in the heart. It's not, just, it's not just external stuff. It's heart. And so we, we've said this many times that, that all sin is a worship problem. All sin is idolatry. But Paul makes it very explicit in Colossians chapter 3 verse 5. He says that in particular covetousness, greed is idolatry. Colossians 3, 5. It's seeking one's ultimate joy and satisfaction and and deliverance in something other than God. That God himself is not enough. His presence is not our greatest good. That's what we're saying when we're covetous and greedy. And this greed leads to other sins like idolatry always does. First Timothy six nine, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Again, this is Ahab's story. It, it, sinful lust for more plunges him ultimately to, to ruin and destruction. So this is so the exhortation to us then is don't don't take greed or covetousness in your heart lightly you need to guard tenaciously against greed in your life watch out for that toxin of greed it it, it clogs the spiritual arteries of our hearts and it can kill us we are all prone to this and so uh, and one of the things one of the things that we know we see in, is that greed is very sneaky it's very sneaky. This is why this is why Jesus said in Luke twelve, verse fifteen, says, Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of riches. And that's why Paul says, Don't don't even let there be a hint of covetousness or greed in your life. Because it is sneaky. It's not like some other sin. It's not like murder or stealing or even lying, when you know you've done it, you can hide it, but you, you know you're guilty, we don't even always know we're greedy. We don't always recognize that about our hearts. And so it's, it's very dangerous. It's very subtle, but it is very deadly. It's not just sneaky, it's, it's dangerous. It, it, it's one of the reasons that the word doesn't take root in our lives as it should. Jesus said this in Mark four nineteen. the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for things, it chokes the word out in our lives. And so we need to be on guard. It's very sneaky. It's very dangerous. And it's very serious because it's a worship problem. So keep those things in mind. That's part of the way we fight against greed is reminding us what it really is. But one, let me just give you one other antidote to greed. In your life and in my life, and it's this: it's generous giving. I mean, Jesus makes this very clear. But giving generously, it frees us from the power that greed has on our lives. I mean, if you're if you're really serious about killing this sin in your life, putting sin this sin to death, as Paul talks about in Colossians three five, then, then do a simple check of where your money is going. That's going to be telling. Have you considered how much you've given to the local church this year? Uh, how involved are you in giving to world missions and grace promise? How, how much are you giving to the needy, to the poor? How how, how much of a priori- how high of a priority is that in your life? Uh, think through these things. Are you looking for opportunities to share and to help others? Not just reacting and if something happens to come along. Jesus says, "Your heart follows your money." Uh, Luke twelve thirty four. And so, by, by giving generously to support God's cause, you're you're basically just cutting the life off of greed and uh, of of greed in your life, starving it out. So be on guard. All right, that was a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I, I don't think we can help but see that the that exhortation there in the text, verse five. All right, we can cue the villainous music here. Um, wicked Jezebel enters. And so Jezebel goes to find Ahab, and he's in this pathetic state, <laughs> sulking because he can't have what he wants. Verse 5, Jezebel came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed? Why are you, why are you so sullen and vexed? Why, do you, why don't you eat food? Verse 6, And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, The Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Let me just pause real quick. That is not what Naboth said. He's already lying here. He's misrepresenting. The whole point is that the Naboth's vineyard is not Naboth's to sell in the first place. That's what he said. He said, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father's. And he's saying, that's all right. So verse 7. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Ouch. Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. She basically is calling him a weakling. A wimpy crybaby. You're a king. Act like it. And then she kind of condescendingly says, it's okay, honey, I'll take care of it for you. You can see who wore wore the pants in the palace here. Um, So then we move to the next move, verse 8. This is Jezebel plotting. She is a woman who knows how to get things done. And so she goes right to work. She uses Ahab's letterhead, his seal... And she writes letters to the local officials and she probably the officials that she knew were already corrupt or those that she knew would be too scared to not comply with her wishes. And so she writes these letters and the, and the letter says this, verse nine, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him, saying, you have cursed God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. So her plan is this. It's basically to frame Naboth for blasphemy, cursing God, and treason, cursing the king. And to do it in this very public way. And, And so they call this big public fast. Isn't that interesting that that's what she uses? It has this tinge of righteousness, of religion to it. It's this religious fast. And then they hire these two losers, these worthless men, to, to to tell lies about him. And it takes two witnesses to substantiate a charge under Jewish law. And so she's she's again she's has this tinge of righteousness, of of this to it, though it's so deceptive. Verse thirteen. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying. Naboth cursed God and the king. This is awful, isn't it? I mean, you just put yourself in the shoes of Naboth here and his family. I mean, this, this will get your blood boiling. It should, if you're reading it right, if you're really listening. This is gross injustice. This is a stereotype of everything that God hates and condemns in Scripture. This is the, the, the powerful oppressing the weak, the rich oppressing the poor. It's deception and corruption and lying and greed and violence and bloodshed. And this is awful. This is just raw wickedness. And he even uses the pretense of religion to kind of cover it up, which again is so detestable to the Lord. So verse 13, end of verse 13. So they took him outside the city, stoned him to death. Verse 14, then they sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. Job's done. Wash hands, move on. It's over. Plan worked. And then we get the last movement in the story here, verse 15. Ahab possesses verse 15 as soon as Jezebel Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead Jezebel said to Ahab arise uh, take possession of the of the vineyard for Naboth is not alive but dead and as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard to take possession of it and this just added evil to evil you think about it just with even with Naboth dead the land doesn't belong to Ahab it belongs to his descendants. And yet he comes in, takes the land. In 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 26, we'll be there eventually. We, we learn that Naboth's sons were also taken out, were killed. Uh, probably to, to remove any possibility of, of, of interference among the family with the land and who had it. Ahab, Jezebel wanted to make sure it was theirs. And all of this for a pancake, for a vegetable garden. That's, this is awful. What, what do you say to Naboth's family, to his widow, if she was still living? What do you say to his friends and neighbors? and What do you say to those other 6,999 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal? Or, or this, let's bring it into our day. What do you what do you tell the daughters of Sadia Ali Omar, this young Somali Christian mother who was recently beheaded publicly with their girls watching because she refused to renounce Jesus Christ? What do you what do you say to them? this is not there's no trite Easy answers here. But there's truth. What do you say? How do you make sense of this? I mean, Nabus stands in this long line of saints who have suffered and died for being faithful to him. And we need to be prepared to suffer as well. If if I could preach Naboth's funeral, I was this is where this next points come in. I was thinking about this week. This would be the passage I would probably use. 1 Peter chapter 4, 12 to 19. Now I realize I'm mixing up dispensations here, and so just give me that license. But Peter knew what it was to suffer and ultimately to die for the sake of Christ, for the sake of righteousness. He writes 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, oh, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is the this is a this battle has been raging for millennia. Don't be surprised. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Why? Why are you blessed? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You you know God's presence in a deeper way and His presence allows you to endure. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian just for being associated with Christ... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? It's, it's got a suffering has an end for the believer. It has a sanctifying purpose, but it also has a termination point. for the unrighteous, it's not the case. It's horrific and it's eternal. Be cheered by that. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. There's many encouragements that that come out of this passage and, and i'm just guys you can just throw those up on the screen and I, I'm going to move on um, As we need to we need to press on in our study of kings and so if, um, persecutions par for the course of christianity These are just coming out of here suffering and joy are not incompatible. God blesses those who suffer with His powerful presence God can be made to look very good when we're being treated very badly. We can glorify god do what we were made to do in our suffering. Suffering as a shelf life for the believer. And then we can and should entrust our souls into God's strong and faithful hands. Those are some of the encouragements. Jesus perfectly modeled this kind of suffering for righteousness sake. And of entrusting his soul to God. Peter says earlier in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. He committed no sin. He Neither was there deceit in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But he, what, continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So we have this Savior who perfectly understands suffering for righteousness. He's the ultimate righteous sufferer. Verse 24 of 1 Peter 2, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we may die to sin, live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. That's, that's the only thing that makes sense of the suffering, the persecution. That's Christ's suffering. And His, the next point is Christ's return. There will be payday someday. And that's the second thing. Be assured that there will be payday someday. Second exhortation. Let's move, let's move along here. Everything seems to be wrapped up. All he has to do now is walk down there, take possession of the vineyard. It's his. That's it. And celebrate and rejoice that he has what he wanted. The little whining hound. But little does nah- Ahab know that God has been talking to Elijah verse 17 of chapter 21, we read this familiar phrase again here in the, in the book of Kings. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. Ah, that's a turning point there. God tells Elijah everything that's happened and he tells Elijah where he needs to go and what he needs to do. And when he gets there, what he needs to say. And so that's verse 19 and there. And so Elijah goes, he goes at once, obeys the Lord, finds Ahab checking out his new garden spot. Look in verse 20, Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? (laughs) He's not exactly excited to see Elijah, is he? This is not a man with a clear conscience. Verse 20, again, Elijah answered, I have found you. God, God never took his eyes off of Ahab. So he knew exactly where to direct Elijah to find him. And this is the first thing I want you to see. No one can hide from God's watchful eye. This is one of the lessons we learn here. No one. Proverbs fifteen three: The eyes of the Lord are everywhere. They're they keeping watch on, over the evil and the good. Nothing you do, nothing you say, nothing you think is hidden from God. And I want you to remember that when you're tempted to sin in secret. God's eye is everywhere. Young people, you can fool your mom and your dad. You you cannot fool God. You can cheat and fool your teacher. God sees. He knows. Husbands, wives, you can can hide sin from your spouse, but you, you can't hide it from the Lord. You can hide stealing from your employer. It's all exposed to God. He knows. So, so you can't escape God's watching eye. Verse 20, he says, again, I found you. Why? Because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. That's graphic language. He totally abandoned himself to the service of sin. He's a slave to sin. You've sold yourself out verse 21 Behold I will bring disaster upon you I will utterly burn you up and will cut you off from cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel this is what God told Elijah to tell him and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam the son of Nebat and like the house of Baasha the son of Ahijah for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin and of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. That's the word against Ahab. And those prophecies are eventually fulfilled. It takes a little while, but they do come to pass. Just give you a little look ahead here, and this is next week. There will be three years of war between Syria and Israel before Ahab dies. His story is is graphic. We'll see it next week, and it's terrifying. And, and, and against the Council of Micaiah, Ahab goes into battle against Syria at Ramoth-Gilead. And... He goes into battle in disguise. He tells the king of Judah, he says, you wear robes, so you look like a king. I'm just going to go in disguise. I know they're looking for me. And so he goes in disguise, thinking he'll go unnoticed. The Syrians are looking for Ahab and Ahab only. And they they find Jehoshaphat, but they let him go. They realize he's not the king of Israel, he's king of Judah. They, they stop pursuing him. And then the text just says that a certain man drew his bow at random. That's what the text says. 22, 34. And he slings an arrow at random, and it strikes Ahab between uh, the, his armor and his breastplate. And, and what that is showing, there's this is unnamed warrior, slings an arrow. You know who's firing that arrow ultimately? I mean, I'm not saying there wasn't a human archer. The ultimate archer is the sovereign hand of God. And so it it hits him just in the right spot, fired at random. He's propped up in his chariot until he dies, verse 35. And the blood of Ahab flows to the bottom of the chariot. And they take the chariot with the body in the chariot all the way back to Samaria. And they're washing the blood out of the bottom of the chariot. And the text says dogs came and licked the blood up. Judgment came. What about Jezebel, the snake coiled upon the throne of Israel? Her execution is told in Second Kings chapter nine, years after Elijah's prophecy, and an army captain named Jehu is obeying God's word, and, he, and he's having all of Ahab's descendants killed, as according to prophecy. And he also gave an order to, to have Jezebel the, she put on makeup so she wouldn't be recognized again. God sees, God knows. And she's anticipating the arrival of Jehu. And so she puts on makeup, tries to hide. But he he orders her to be thrown down from an upstairs window. And she dies from the fall. And he sends men to bury her. But they just find traces of her body. Because the dogs have eaten her body up. Fulfilling, again, Elijah's prophecy. Judgment was delayed, but judgment came. Again, last quote, I think, from R.G. Lee, but he said, Don't you know Ahab jumped every time he heard a dog bark? (laughs) Uh, But the the wicked may prosper for a short time in this life. Psalm 73, Asaph, he's, he's wrestling with this struggle. But the arrow of God's judgment will strike and God the righteous judge will have the last word no disguise no makeup no schemes can prevent this so this is the second thing that no one can elude god's justice no one that's a great truth that truth is a great comfort to the persecuted believer i know we're god is graciously kept us from some of the more overt and physical forms of persecution up to this point. Those of us who will stay here, uh, and have lived here. Um, but, but this is, this is just a great comfort and encouragement to God's people. The psalmist, the psalms, they took enormous comfort in this, the fact that God would enact vengeance upon the wicked one day. Now, they weren't embarrassed by that. They rejoiced in that. And, and so this psalm gives, or this, passage it gives suffering believers comfort it the the christians suffer around the world at the hands of violent men and women not one single unjust action goes unnoticed by god and unpunished by god so and listen maybe because of where we where we're at and because of our culture we we may read this and we may think this is pretty harsh this is a little over the top. I mean, eaten by dogs and birds, everyone you love is dead. It seems a little, little drastic. Just in case you're tempted to feel pity for Ahab here, the writer of Kings throws in a little editorial comment here, a little parenthetical statement, and reminds us who we're talking about here. Verse 25, this is in parentheses. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. So the bad guys, the, the right bad guy is going to get it. This is the moment if you're watching a movie and the bad guy gets it and the good guy wins. And, just, and, and everybody in the theater stands up and claps, which I always think is weird when people clap in a movie. But, um, but this is it. He, he got what's coming. He's going to get it. And that's where the story should end, right? Verse 26. But inconveniently, it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. Look at what happens in verse 27. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. What? What just happened? It, it should say when Ahab heard these words, he went home vexed and sullen. Bitter and angry. That's what he always does when he hears things he doesn't want to hear. But no, Ahab's actions demonstrate this. These are the, these are, these are hum, this is humble repentance. The, at least the actions of humble repentance. It's just crazy. And we think he's putting on a show. He's a deceiver. He's putting on a show. He's not really repentant. He could fool some people, but he can't fool God. We figure that out by now. But look at what happens. Verse 28, And the word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? (laughs) You can't trick God. There's apparently some measure of real humility here, some measure of real repentance. It it may not be lasting repentance, as we'll see, but but in this moment, he's genuinely humbling himself before the Lord in the face of judgment. Judgment. That Elijah has said is coming. And we think, okay, I feel sorry for you, Ahab. I feel bad for you. But it's too little, too late, Buster. I mean, you have committed too many atrocities against God's people. You've now killed a man, taken his vineyard just because you could. You knew you could get away with it. Uh, you can't expect to get off scot free with a little bit of I'm sorry. God. But look at this, verse 29, the end of verse 29. Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days. But in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. Now, it's true, judgment is canceled, but it's delayed. It's going to come on his sons, but God shows patience and mercy and restraint towards this wicked but repentant king. At least temporarily repentant. Now, if we're honest, we don't like this ending. <laughs> it doesn't seem fair to us. We're not satisfied with this outcome because why is that? Why do we think like that? Because whose shoes are we putting ourselves in in this story? Naboth's. Be honest. We're, we're thinking, yeah, I'm like Naboth or his widow or his sons. But you put yourself in the shoes of Ahab and suddenly this sounds pretty good. Um, now, listen. You've probably not killed anyone to take their vineyard before. (laughs) I hope not. If you have, please confess and we will call the authorities. Um, But you, and we'll minister to you in jail, but that's where you're going and belong. Um, But have you ever tried to get something you want your own way instead of God's way? Have you ever allowed greed and covetousness and discontent and bitterness to, to linger in your heart? You feed those things and, and it lingers in your heart to the point that it, it um, affects the way that you treat other people. And we're not so different from Ahab as we'd like to think. So it is true. We should be grateful for God's justice. And we should always root for God to bring the evil to account. But we should also revel in God's mercy. We, we, we know it. No, and this is what the story teaches, no one is beyond the reach of God's mercy. And we can thank God that that's true, because if it's not true, not one of us is saved. Because Ahab's not the worst sinner I know. I'm the worst sinner I know. I know more about my own heart and my own wickedness than, I, than God has chosen to reveal to me about Ahab. And yet God is gracious to me. And we can thank God for that. And so recognize, revel in God's grace towards you. Celebrate it. Enjoy it. And as you as you identify yourself with Ahab in this story and revel in God's grace towards sinners like you, it's going to provoke deep compassion in your heart for other sinners. It should. And your first and only response to evildoers will not be just, God, get them. But it will also be, God, save them save them and there will be compassion for your enemies well there will be payday someday we can be assured of that that God is the judge to whom everyone will give an account hell you know hell is not a popular doctrine today it is very much out of style and this postmodern culture evangelicals are, are embarrassed by it it seems it is not fashionable in American pulpits today to talk about hell Um, But you can't escape the reality of God's judgment in scripture It's certain it's coming. It's eternal It, It may not be immediate, but it is it is certain And inevitable and so evil may seem like it's winning the day But God will bring it to account in this life. Maybe there will be an account but in certainly in the next and so, what we see, Ahab's excitement over the vineyard he so desperately wanted, it was cut short by this message from God. And, and, Basically, God is saying, Ahab, you're not as powerful as you think you are. You can't just do what you want. You're you're a weak human being. You're accountable to God alone. You're about to face the judgment of God. That's what the word that comes to Ahab is. And listen, that word is a word we need to come to us. We need to hear that. The, The only escape from judgment that is coming to us is through Jesus Christ. He has taken our guilt, our judgment upon himself if we're in Christ. So Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it's not that the, we, the bad guys, just get reformed. and So we, we, we just eventually, our black hats, we just kind of keep painting them white. And eventually we have these white hats and we're the good guys all of a sudden. And, and we get to ride off in the sunset with God. That's not it. No, we're black hats to the core. We have the biggest, blackest hats there are. And yet Christ comes and he has a perfectly white hat and he lives a perfectly righteous life. He's the only good guy in the story. And he comes and he lives his perfect life and yet he dies. He puts on our black hat basically on the cross and he absorbs all of God's wrath and judgment for all the wrong we've done. And he takes it in his own self and he dies and yet he rises again with this glorious washed white hat washed with blood doesn't make sense physically but it it's 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 true spiritually he washed it's cleansed and so then we put on if we trust in Christ we put on his perfect white hat it's it's not ours it's his we're clothed in his righteousness we stand robed in His white garments, swashed garments. That's why we're not condemned by God. It's not because we've cleaned our act up. It's because we've trusted in the righteousness of another. And so I hope that you've done that. If you've not, I urge you to believe in Jesus today and, and, and let all of that filth, all of that the, the sin in your life be cleansed by Jesus Christ, forgiven by Him. Not that you'll never sin again. You, we are we are we still continue to sin, but Christ's blood cleanses us and covers us, even when we sin. So Naboth's story it, it calls our attention to that story, to Jesus' story, because you think about it: Jesus' enemies conspired against him. They falsely accused him of blasphemy. They mocked him. They beat him. They took him out the city, out, outside of the city, and they killed him. Jesus' blood, though, Hebrews says, it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And I would say the blood of Naboth. Their their blood demands vengeance. Christ's blood, it offers forgiveness and pardon. I hope that you know that today. And if you're in Christ, rejoice and revel in it today. Let's pray. Lord, I, I do pray that we will rejoice and celebrate in the grace that is ours through Jesus Christ. May the blood of Christ speak that word clearly to our hearts, God, even as we sing now. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.